Uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, you can go ahead and open it. We're 13. Uh, we're going to be taking a few weeks to go through uh, this wonderful book of the Bible's last chapter. Uh, we'll hopefully finish it two Sundays from now, Lord willing. Uh, but I wanted to share a couple things before we turn our attention to this text uh, just briefly. A special welcome to you if you are a guest with us, especially if you live locally. Uh, and, and if you're interested in knowing more about our church or connecting with us, we'd love to try to uh, connect with you. If you want to fill out sometime this morning or later today uh, a connection card digitally, you can do that. You can follow that QR code. Uh, it's also on the back of your program. Or you can just fill it out, actually handwrite it old school uh, on the back of the program and take it out before you leave. Go out to the lobby, turn left, and there will be a counter out there where some folks in the days ahead. But we're grateful that you are here with us. And then to those who are regularly part of our church, I wanted to say, as always, thank you for your generosity uh, to the, the general fund of our church and uh, helping fund the mission of our church. I was meditating just briefly yesterday as I was thinking about our gathering upon uh, just how thankful I am for your generosity. It's not lost on me. And I was reminded of this text uh, that the Lord brought to mind, 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 8, verse 7, the Apostle Paul uh, telling that church, trying to commend to them to pool their resources together, their financial resources. He called it that giving of resources he called an act of grace. And I just want to remind you uh, that it's not lost to me that your giving is an act of grace. It's not something that you are bound by the law of God to do in some rigid way, but I hope that it's something you are compelled by the grace and kindness of God to do. Uh, the one who's given you so much, even in himself, uh, that you, um, by his grace, can give to his mission here amongst us locally and internationally. So thank you uh, for your ongoing generosity. All right, we come to uh, Hebrews 13 today, and we're going to try to get through verses 1 through 6. Uh, there's much to cover here, uh, but you're going to see a lot about love in this text, in the beginning of this chapter, and I, I was reminded of just what's become a common mantra in our culture today, and maybe it's around the world, but it certainly is here, and, and it goes like this. You've probably heard this many times, where people say, love is love. Right? Or they may expand it just to exaggerate their point. They'll say, love is love is love is love. And they're trying to make certain points in that. But embedded in that is this idea that when it comes to love, that there's no ethical boundaries to that. That there, there's no right and wrong. That uh, there's not to be a restraint of any kind of love uh, that we feel rise up within us. So there's just to be a celebration, an affirmation of those things. That the loves we feel within us are just to be felt and to be followed Right? Never subdued, never restrained. But we know that statement that love is love is love is love is actually false. I think even the people who say it know deep down in their hearts that that is a false statement. That not all loves are equal, right? Love of cereal is different than love of spouse, right? And also the categories, how important loves are are different, but the rightness and wrongness of loves is also evident that uh, not all loves are noble. Not all loves are righteous. And the, the reality is that we must, as human beings, and especially as Christians, we must order our loves, not just respond to them, not just follow the impulses that rise up within us, but we have to order our loves. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, which thanks to John Slope for starting our church history class this morning, I heard Augustine even uh, referenced in the class, but long ago he wrote this um, about the ordering of loves. He said that living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less. Do you get what he's saying there? I think that that's very true, that, that our loves are to be ordered. There's certain things that we are to love, there's certain things we are not to love, and then there's levels of love. There's degrees to which we are to love certain things and people that we need to have in the right places and the right measures. And this text today is going to call us as God's people, all, all the Christians in the room, it's going to call us to this sort of ordered love. 
uh, to think through our lives. It's going to give us a, if you want to think of it like a solar system, it's going to give us a central love, like a sun, uh, that's to, to be the governing love in our life as we think about our human relationships. But then he's going to help us think about some of the planets that orbit that in our ethical system as we make decisions, as we think through how to live our life. This text is going to call us to certain loves that maybe we don't feel strongly in our hearts, but it's also going to forbid us from other loves that maybe we do feel present in our life more than we should. And so uh, as we come to the end of this letter, I just want to review where we've been just briefly because I know not all of you have been with us, and that is okay. Uh, but this letter, we've taken, we've taken nearly a year to go through it. So we've gone through it slowly, but I trust beneficially. Um, but uh, this letter was written by an author we don't know who to a group of early Jewish Christians uh, who were coming under opposition for their faith as Christians uh, who had had threats come to them and they were tempted to revert back to the Jewish faith, to Jewish practices, rather than continue and persevering in their faith in Christ. And as we get to chapter 13, the tone of this shifts dramatically. If you've been with us for all these months, you've seen this author has done some really extended arguments. And he's like referred back to Old Testament, sometimes obscure people like Melchizedek. And he's like done a lot of teaching uh, and exhortation woven through it. But here it's almost going to be, and you'll see it when I read it, it's going to be like a shift to like rapid fire commands. Like exhortations just pile up at the end of this letter here. It's kind of like an epilogue of sorts to the letter. And as Ben reminded us, if, if you were here with us last Sunday, uh, just right before what we're about to read, the author had contrasted Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And he had reminded them as Christians that they've not come to Mount Sinai and just the keeping of the law, but that they've been granted access to Mount Zion, where they are already there and will be there if they persevere in the faith. And he ended, if you were with us last Sunday, just to get us up to speed and kind of get, uh, get on the runway and get going before we read this text. The last couple verses of chapter 12, he had ended by telling them, in light of them coming to Mount Zion, he had told them, this is how you're to relate to God. He had said that you are to God to offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So he had like helped them see the Godward uh, responsibilities that they had. As he gets to chapter 13, you're going to see he shifts from giving commands about how to relate to God to giving commands about how to relate to fellow humans and to fellow Christians in particular. One commentator said he shifts from a Godward focus to a manward focus. Focus. And so that's what we're going to see happen here. It'll be, feel different from all the texts that have preceded it, but it's still inspired by the Spirit, still good for us, important for us to walk through. So let me read this, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, and then we'll walk back through this together and see what it teaches us about how to order our loves as Christians. So this author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continued his letter this way. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this text this way, this one sentence, and I'll share where we see it and what the relevance it has for us. I summarize this text and the author's message this way, that those who are perfectly loved by God in heaven should have rightly ordered loves here on earth. That those who are perfectly loved by God in heaven should have rightly ordered loves here on earth. And so uh, as he uh, turns the page, so to speak, to chapter 13, this epilogue and all these commands, uh, what is that sun at the center of their moral solar system? As they think about relating to human beings, uh, what does he call them to as the central thing that other things should fit around, that other things should orbit around? I, you see it right in verse 1, right off the bat, as he, he shifts into these exhortations. The first one he gives them is that sun of their moral universe. He says, let brotherly love continue. 
Let brotherly love continue. It's kind of like a heading for all the verses that follow. He's going to, after this, give example after example of what brotherly love should look like. And I would just note, he's not correcting this church. He's, not, he's telling them, let this brotherly love continue. Not, hey, y'all need to start doing that. He knows they're already doing it, but he wants them to continue doing it. He, he's not correcting them. He's commending them and telling them to keep living this way, keep loving each other in this way, but he commands a certain type of love, right? He doesn't just say, let love continue. He says, let brotherly love continue, right? And that, that's, that's important, that he tells them to love that way, to love each other in that type of way as brothers, because we often can forget, if we don't remind ourselves of the truth, we often forget that Christians are not just people who believe the same doctrine. It's not just, hey, we all would answer theological questions the same. But the, the thing that binds us together is deeper than that. It's that we have the same heavenly Father. Right? It's not just uh, ideas we believe, but it's relationships that we have. It's both. Um, but we have become brothers and sisters with one another. Right? We're not just people who believe the same things, but we have the same Heavenly Father. We are brothers and sisters together. He had told them even back in chapter 12, if you were here with us last week, he had told them as they come to Mount Zion, as they come to God, he had also told them in verse 23 of that chapter, he told them, you also are coming to the assembly of the firstborn, right? And you're also coming to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He was reminding them, it's not just that Jesus has gained you access to God, but that Jesus has gained you unity with his people and the family of God, right? And Jesus had so much to say about this. You read through the gospels and you'll see again and again uh, that Jesus taught his disciples to love one another, that the, the marker of them as a people, that marks them out as his people, would be that they love each other as brothers, that they love each other like family. So this is that, that header, uh, that's that son of the moral universe, as they think about relating to fellow humans as brotherly love. That is what should govern and direct all other types of love that they experience, that they feel uh, in their life. And I, I just want to pause briefly before we get to some of these specifics and just uh, remind you, if you are a Christian in the room, if you're a follower of Christ, that you are commanded in the scriptures, and it's implied in this text, you are commanded to have a special love for fellow Christians that you don't have for other human beings, uh, that you are to have a unique, a special love for fellow Christians. And my simple question would be, do you? Like, do you have a special love for fellow Christians, for brothers and sisters that are in your life? And more than that, not just do you have a unique type of love for fellow Christians, but is that brotherly love central in your life? Does it govern how you arrange all other loves in your life? Uh, is the love of the brothers and sisters a central love in your life? I was thinking, at least in my experience, I love my siblings to death. I have a, a twin brother. I have a younger sister. Uh, but what has become true in my life, I think it's probably true in many people's lives, is that the older we get, the more mature we get, often our siblings lose significance in our life. Like we spend less time with them when we're in the throes of childhood. We're with them in the ebb and flow of things, but then we move states apart or we have our own responsibilities. And as we grow in our earthly lives, often our siblings lose their prominence, lose their significance in our life. But may that never, ever be in the family of God. May we never think that Christian maturity, as I get closer to God and grow in my maturity, I need my siblings less and less. That's, that is false. That is a lie from saying we need our brothers and sisters just as much in our infancy as Christians as we do in our maturity. Like we always need brothers and sisters in our life. And I, I just want to pause also before we get to some of these specific commands and acknowledge that to have this type of brotherly love, sisterly love, family love, implies you have to have God as your father, right? And I just want to be clear that uh, to anyone who is not a Christian in the room, who has not yet uh, come to faith in Christ, I want to, to tell you, you do not earn your way into becoming one of God's sons and daughters. Uh, God has no foster children right? Like he has no stepchildren. He, has, he doesn't like feel us out and let circumstances just kind of dictate whether he'll really receive us and whether we'll really fully become his children. We are either orphans or we are full adopted sons and daughters of God. 
And the way that you become a fully adopted son or daughter of God and that you become a brother and sister with uh, fellow Christians is not by starting to do all these commands we're about to see. That, that these are commands given to people uh, who are already loved by God, who have already been received into his family. And so I want to rid you of any idea as you start to hear these commands that I'm about to go over. I want to rid you of any idea that if I just orient the, sun, the, the planets of my life this way, that I will become one of God's children. That is not how this works. Like Christ gave his life at Calvary upon the cross. He suffered for our sins. He took our sin upon himself and died in our place. So that if we're united with him, we become a son or daughter of God fully and finally. And that can be true of you today. You don't have to start test running these loves and getting things right in your life, getting things in orbit the right way. You simply come to God repenting of your sins, saying, I am sorry that I've rebelled against you. And I'm thankful that your son was put to death in my place. and He's been raised from the dead. Please forgive me. And that is what gains you entrance. That's what, not gains you, but that's how you become a son or daughter of God. And then how you can live brotherly love out. But if you try to just run doing these things, you will fail. Uh, you, and you will not become a son or daughter of God by doing them even if you could. It is gained by Christ. So this is that son that he puts at the center of their moral universe is a love for fellow Christians. But then it affects, I think, all these different ways that we live our life. Love is not just a feeling, right? It's not just something, a sentiment that we have within our hearts. It actually affects how we orient our life. It affects what we do, what we don't do, how we speak, how we spend our time, how we spend our resources. It affects how we live our life. And so this author gives several commands that we're just going to have have to go through quickly, but he helps them see how that center uh, sun of brotherly love helps us to put all the other planets uh, of love in the right place. I want to show you how he does this and how he connects it, I think, to brotherly love, Uh, and then uh, I hope and trust that the Spirit will use it to bring conviction to some, encouragement to some, clarity to some, uh, as we need it today. So the first one, this is going to be verse by verse. He gives one command pretty much with each verse in this text. So the first one that he tries to help them understand is that brotherly love compels our hospitality. Uh, If if we have brotherly love as the central governing, driving uh, factor in our life, it's going to to lead to hospitality. It's going to lead to a particular type of love toward other people. And so he says here in verse 2, he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I will just say up front, the, the second half of that is still fairly mysterious to me. Uh, I, I don't have uh, great keen insight into the, what that is about entertaining angels. Uh, there's a story in Genesis 18 where Abraham and Sarah welcomed these angelic messengers uh, and fed them and cared for them. That is the closest I can get. But I don't think often that we're going to have the experience of just having angels pop into our homes uh, that we are not aware are angels. Uh, but I do think the beginning of this verse is very clear. If the second half is more opaque and hard to see, the first half is not. It's very straightforward. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Uh, what he is telling them here is, is not just to, when he says to show hospitality to strangers, it could equally in English translation say to love strangers to love them well, to that love uh, for a stranger includes, part of that is welcoming them into your home. But this isn't just, when he says strangers, I don't think he's just saying love and show hospitality to random people. Like, hey, just go out into town and grab some random people who you know nothing about and just invite them into your home. Remember, this is falling under that heading of let brotherly love continue. When he talks about strangers, I think he's speaking to about people who are brothers and sisters in the Lord, but with whom we don't necessarily have a lot in common, uh, that we don't know a lot about them. Maybe we have a different culture. Maybe we have a different background. Maybe we come from different social statuses and social classes, uh, but they were to host people. They were to welcome people into their homes, not just who are their kin, like people who just naturally come there, but to be willing and to have their home be open to people who are different from them, brothers and sisters who are different. This could have been in their day and age people who were traveling through their town. 
right, who were, who were on their way somewhere else. It could have been people who were ministering in their town as maybe some of the apostles or, or just teachers or, or people that were within the church were coming through their town. They could welcome them in. Or it could have even been, I think, new converts, people who were from different cultures, but people who had come to faith in Christ. He's calling them to have a hospitality oriented toward them. And I, I think the reason he does this is this. He, remember, he's just talked about how God has opened Mount Zion to us, right? The place where God dwells, the city of God, God has opened that to us. Then who are we as his people to say, this home you've given me here on this earth, that I'm going to keep it closed to other people, that this is just a retreat center for me, it's just a castle for me to live in, it's my safe place. If God has opened his home to us, then we are to open our home to others, even people who are different from us, people we don't have an obligation to, but people we have a spiritual connection with. We are to welcome them. I was trying to think of an analogy of this in keeping with the brotherly love and family. I, I was thinking of, uh, I hope this never happens to me, but I was thinking of stories where people f- discover they have a long-lost sibling have you heard of these types of stories before? Like, uh, and they happen all sorts of different ways, but they realize all of a sudden, whoa, I have a brother or sister I didn't know that I had. And they maybe grew up in a whole different environment than me, but we have the same parent or same parents. How you relate to that person, if you find out there's that person, you're going to welcome them into your home in a different way than you do just a stranger off the street, right? Because you know there's some sort of connection that you have with them. There's a common family heritage that you have. You would be probably thrilled, I think, unless there's some unusual circumstances. You'd probably be thrilled to get to know them, to start to know who they are. And hear this. Every time you meet a fellow Christian, even if they are dramatically different from you, even if you don't speak the same language, you have very little in common, earthly speaking, you have the same spiritual father. They are like a long-lost sibling, right? They are someone you should be thrilled to get to know, to ask questions, to hear their story, to get to uh, encourage them, to get to care for them. That is what our orientation should be with our homes, is to see fellow Christians as these siblings, as long-lost siblings sometimes that I may not know well, but we have much in common that makes me want to welcome you into my home. But this is a struggle for us, I think, in our culture. Some cultures, this is more natural than others. In American culture, at least today, we struggle to show hospitality. It does not come naturally to us. Uh, We struggle to show hospitality in general, let alone to strangers, let alone to people who are different from us. And we have, if we're trying to think of the, the, the planets in our love solar system, we have rival loves to love of brother, right? We have love for privacy, Right? We have a love of convenience and simplicity, predictability, that when we have people come over, when we open our homes to them, those loves get threatened. Right? What we cannot do as Christians is let, let those loves dictate, let those loves, those loves of uh, privacy, convenience, just be what governs the way we use our home. Like brotherly love must be what governs the way that we use our home, that we use the resources that God has given to us. And so I would encourage you, practically speaking, if you're a Christian, look for opportunities that come before you. Uh, They don't have to be profound or deep. When college students come back this summer, or at the end of this summer, they may feel very different to you. They may feel like strangers to you, uh, depending on your age and background. But what a privilege to start to get to know them and to welcome them into your home, to get to spend time with them and ask them questions questions, hear how the Lord is at work in their life. When we have field workers who come home on furlough, they may feel very foreign to you. You probably feel very foreign to them, but take time to talk to them, to get to know them, uh, be an encouragement to them, hear what the Lord has been up to in their life. And when you do have people over into your home, please, and I, I have to resist this too, do not seek to impress people as much as you try to invest in the people. Uh, like when we open our homes, we should not be just trying to impress people with our cleanliness or the, the quality of our food or how great of chefs we are, or our musical tastes or things like that. The reason we open our homes is not to impress, but it's to invest in people. It's to care for them well, help them feel encouraged, help them feel the love of God through our love them. And so brotherly love, that, that central sun in our ethical universe, it should compel us to hospitality, uh, to welcome people into our homes, to love fellow Christians by welcoming them into our homes. Secondly, uh, in verse 3, 
He says uh, another way that, that the central love of the brothers should affect the way that we live our life. That it should orient other loves in our life. Verse 3, he says this. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. And here I would say that brotherly love, that sun at the center of the universe, what it compels, the way it should govern the other loves in our life, is that it should lead to solidarity with fellow Christians. Uh, even people who are being mistreated, people who are being looked down upon in our community or in our world, uh, we should have solidarity with them. That should be a governing uh, truth and reality in our life. This command here is not uh, a command, if I'm understanding it rightly, a command to care for all prisoners. To care just for every prisoner, period. No matter what's true about their life, that it's just a blanket statement, remember those who are in prison. Uh, but a specific call to remember those who are in prison for their faith. To remember fellow Christians who have been mistreated, who've been uh, potentially lied against or taken advantage of and imprisoned or mistreated for their faith. Uh, and he does it, I think it's warranted from this text, because he says... Since you also are in the body, right? He's talking about Christians who are in this circumstance. People who've been imprisoned for their faith. They've been imprisoned as Christians. They're being mistreated as Christians, right? And I want you to imagine the temptation. This feels strange to us. We don't have to deal with this a lot. But imagine if fellow Christians really do someday start to get arrested for their faith. If they really do start to become imprisoned for worshiping together or for evangelizing or for reading the scriptures or something like that. If people really do start to be mistreated, uh, robbed, imprisoned, those sorts of things, would it not be tempting? I think if we're honest, would it not be tempting for us to keep our distance from those people? Right? To say, man, I don't want that to become me. Like, and the, the, the rival love that we have here to brotherly love is a love for safety, right? A love for reputation. Uh, we have these loves in our heart that well up within us that may tempt us when brothers or sisters are being imprisoned or mistreated to walk away from them to protect our own skin. Say, I don't want that to become me. I don't want my family to go through that. I don't want my friends to have to endure that. And we have this love of safety that has to learn to revolve around the love for brothers, right? The love of brothers is what governs how we deal with this love of safety. And this church has been doing this already. If you were with us back in chapter 10, he had told them back then uh, that at some earlier stage, there had been people who had been uh, mistreated, people who had had their property plundered, those sorts of things. And he had told them, you had compassion on those in prison. That was back in chapter 10, verse 34. So they've been doing this. When people have been in prison, they've had compassion upon them. They've remembered them. They've potentially visited them, sought to encourage them. But he wants these Christians to remember that they should keep doing that. That's not just a one-time thing, but as Christians continue to be mistreated, brothers should not scatter when one of them gets hit, Right? Like, if we're really brothers, we should not run away from, what, one, from our brother who's getting hurt, our brother who's being mistreated, right? We should stay with them. We should seek to love them, care for them, encourage them. We must learn in the ordering of our loves that solidarity with fellow Christians must trump the love of safety that we have in our hearts, right? That there may be threat that comes upon us for association with them, and that is a risk we must take because brotherly love governs all other loves. And this is hard for us to apply directly, but I, I would say one way that we can do this, and we're going to seek to do this tonight at our monthly prayer gathering, is to pray for the persecuted church around the world. There might not be much of that or a lot of that happening in our nation, uh, but there is around the world. There always has been, there always will be, I believe, till Christ returns. And we should do our best to remember them. We may not know them deeply and intimately, but they are brothers and sisters with us, and we should not shrink back from them. We should not see them as just unfortunate uh, people that get mistreated. If you had a brother or sister that was thrown in prison unjustly, like an actual brother or sister in your life, would you just ignore them? Like we just think, oh, that's sad. Or would you seek to intervene? You would seek to intercede. You would seek to express things to them or at least to pray to the Lord on their behalf. And we should do the same. 
But one way I think this can hit ground level for us in orienting our loves is just as we in our culture, I think, do start to experience more situations where Christians are made fun of, where Christians are mocked, where they are kind of scoffed at, uh, we should resist that and joining into that uh, because sometimes when that starts to happen and we read things or we hear people say things that are, are slamming Christians, we can so much want to fit in with that person who's saying that and we so much want their respect that we can just kind of throw, pile on the critiques and the, the shaming of Christians instead of standing up for our fellow believers, our, our brothers and sisters. And that doesn't mean we have to ignore all faults of Christians, but when we start to feel opposition even in miniature form come against the church unwarranted we should have a willingness to stand up for our brothers and sisters and to not shrink back so brotherly love should trump the love of safety Uh, it should lead us to solidarity with fellow christians even who are being mistreated Next, uh, the the next planet he teaches us to kind of orbit around brotherly love is uh, the realm of sexual purity. And this may feel surprising to us how it has anything to do with brotherly love, right? But brotherly love, I think that heading verse number one governs even verse number four uh, of how we think about marriage, how we think about sexuality within marriage. Uh, So first, he says in verse 4, he says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. That is a word for our generation to hear. I actually preach that in miniature form every time I get a privilege of officiating a wedding. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It is losing uh, its uh, esteem in our society. So he tells them, even in their day, to hold it in honor. Married, unmarried alike, we're all to hold it in honor But he turns quickly to not just marriage in general, but even to sexuality within marriage. And he he tells them to have this esteem, this honoring even of sexual purity, right? He says not just to hold marriage in honor, but then he says additionally, let the marriage bed be undefiled, right? The marriage bed is, is kind of like a euphemism for sexual intimacy within marriage. And we know from reading the scriptures, and it's implied here in this text, that sexual intimacy is to be experienced between a husband and wife within the bounds of marriage. And that is the only place it's to be enjoyed, right? Uh, and God then, he, he commands, or he doesn't command, he gives a warning at the end of this verse That's strong, right? He says, God will judge the sexually immoral. That's like this broad category of sexual sin and the adulteress. And so he's giving a warning both to those who are married about committing adultery, but to all of them about how they orient their life sexually, how they behave. And so he he forbids both uh, adultery and sexual immorality. And he gives this strong warning. And why is that so serious? Why does he lay down such a strong warning in verse 4? And what does it have to do with brotherly love, right? I think the reason he gives such a strong warning here and why God does uh, in various other texts as well is because of the uniqueness of the sexual union. That there is something about it in how God created uh, the world, how he created human beings, where God imparted a great deal of power and significance to sexual union, right? Like it, that's just reality from the get-go. That it is this experience, it's that, this thing that can bond and unite a husband and wife like nothing else can. Um, but it also can, if it's misused and misengaged, it, it can start to control people. It can bring great harm upon people. It can destroy people even when it's pursued illicitly. And there, part, it's, I would say, I've heard some people say that, that sexuality is a great gift but a terrible God. That when we start to make it ultimate in our life and just pursue it however we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, it becomes a terrible God that can destroy. And God in creation, long before Jesus ever even came, when he created husband and wife and the intimacy that comes with the sexual union, he painted a picture for all of humanity of the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. There's this unique power, not just in our experience as husbands and wives, but just as humans and seeing uh, the husband and wife relationship and how those two people are bonded together that is supposed to show us something about Jesus and his bride. And so when that gift of sexual intimacy is misused, when it's used for sexual purposes or or selfish purposes, it destroys that image. It mars it, right? It it paints a, a negative picture of Christ and his church. And this is a good word for us, that this, is, this 
Keeping the marriage bed undefiled is tied to brotherly love. It comes under the heading of brotherly love because we tend in our culture today, and I think other cultures do this too, but we tend to think very privately and individually about sexuality, right? We, we think that this is my choice, that nobody has, should have anything to do with this. This doesn't affect anybody. Uh, that, but this text is implying, and others do as well, that our actions, even in the sexual domain, do have a great impact upon people. That they're either demonstrating love to our fellow Christians or hate to our fellow Christians. We might not think of the stakes as being that high, but they do. Think about the impact that adultery and sexual immorality can have on our brothers and sisters. Just pause and think about that. It's not just a purely private thing, right? Adultery. It, it brings first great harm to the spouse who's offended, Right? The, the spouse who's cheated on. I've seen this in so many people's lives that the harm that comes from the spouse who is now betrayed, whose, whose trust has been broken, whose heart has been torn, who, who now and forever is going to have to deal with this fear of the future and a, a temptation to distrust people who make promises to him or her. Right? It's good. They're going to have a temptation to anger, to jealousy, to bitterness. It's going to bring great harm upon the offended, the offended spouse. But even more than that, when adultery is committed, even if other people don't know it, the picture of Christ and his church is tarnished, right? What is supposed to be a secure relationship of, of intimacy and permanency and, and covenanting together is being just uh, splashed with, with black paint. It's being marred uh, beyond recognition, right? Or sexual immorality, not just adultery, but sexual immorality in general, which is such a broad category, but there's so many ways that it can hurt people, that it can, it can damage people. If, if we're actually engaging in, in sexual expression with a brother or sister who's not our spouse, think of the ways, even if you think it is loving to do so with them, it is not. Like you are harming them, whether they realize it or not. Like you are harming them because you are taking what is supposed to be enjoyed within the context of security and stability and covenant and permanency and you are seeking then to use that person, whether you think of it that way or not. Like you are seeking to use them for your own pleasure, your own advantage without giving the, the covenant promises and the covenant security that comes with marriage. You are using them as a commodity to be enjoyed. Right? rather than serving them as a brother or sister in the ways that God calls you to. Or think about the effect that it even has within your own mind and heart as you pursue sexuality illicitly the way that it forms your mind. It, it twists your ideas of intimacy and it affects the way you engage with brothers or sisters moving forward, the way you think about them, the way you see them, the way that, that you engage with them. It, it brings harm to them. And not to mention it just sets a poor example for brothers or sisters coming behind you who are taught from the scriptures to live a life of sexual purity, but see in you a person who claims Christ a disregard for God's commands, that's setting up confusion with them and setting up a path for them to follow that is not healthy or safe. And so that, uh, that, that we have these rival loves, don't we, in the sexual domain. I think that's maybe where we feel it strongly than even these others. We have these rival loves. We have these loves of pleasure, right? Loves of companionship. We have these passions that well up within us. We have this desire, this love of connection, of intimacy, of bondedness with a fellow human being. But we have to learn to order those loves, right? That brotherly love should be expressed even in the way that we live in the sexual domain, the way that we engage with our brothers or sisters. Love of God should be enough to compel sexual purity, right? But love of brother and sister should give added weight, that we think about the effect that our decisions are having upon them. Purity culture is a term that's been used to describe some of what people in my generation were taught about sexuality growing up, and it has gotten a very bad rap in recent years, and some of it is warranted. Uh, some of it uh, should never have been, where people would try to teach young people sexual restraint based purely on shame 
or primarily on shame, trying to scare people away uh, from sexual immorality toward fidelity toward God. If shame is a motivator, we should correct that, right? That, that we, if that's the primary motivator. But I feel fear in our culture that we have swung the pendulum so far the opposite way that we rarely call young people or old people, for that matter, to actual sexual purity in the church any longer because we're afraid we're going to offend or that we're going to be putting law on top of people uh, and adding to the gospel. But this text and others call us as people loved by God to orient our lives in the sexual domain under the love of God and the love of neighbor. And we are doing no one a disservice, or we are doing no one a service if we're quiet and silent about this subject and let them run uh, how they desire to and orient their loves how they want to love. But let me say this before I move on to the last one. There is grace for all of us who have sinned sexually. Uh, when we hear a warning like, at the end of verse 4, God will judge us sexually immoral and adulterous. I think we could have just fear struck in our heart. Man, if I have committed these sins, if I am committing these sins, judgment is coming for me. No pardon, no forgiveness. That is not what this text is seeking to describe. This is describing people who persist in immorality and adultery and never repent. They never come uh, to turn from their sin to place their trust in Christ. But Christ died for sexual sin just as much as he did for financial sin or pride or the way that we use our tongue. He died for all of the sins we commit publicly and privately in the sexual domain if we're united with Christ. And so may you not hear in this text, even in the caution, may you not hear that there is no grace for the sexually immoral or the adulterous. There is if we put our trust in Christ and if we place our hope and our faith in him. There's one final subject he talks about, and it's contentment. As we think of that love of brothers as the sun around which other loves orbit, he covers in verses 5 and 6 the subject of money and contentment. And here he's going to tell them to abandon a love to walk away from a love, right? Because that's part of ordering our loves is sometimes we have these loves that well up within us that we need to put to death, that we need to, to knock out of the solar system, to not have them spinning around anymore and certainly not to have them become the sun around which other things orbit. And here the love he tells them to put in the right place by getting rid of it is the love of money, right? In their situation, if you remember, uh, so he says, keep your life free from the love of money. How might they have been tempted to feel a pull of the love of money? If Christians are starting to be mistreated in their community, right? It would not be a far leap to think that that is affecting their business. That that's affecting their means of income, their ability to engage in the marketplace with people, right? These people would have been on the outsides with their fellow Jews, right? Because they've come to Christ in faith. But they're also experiencing opposition from society at large. And so from both sides, it's like people probably aren't wanting to really fully engage with them. And as they're feeling money dry up and their potential income streams die up or dry up, they no doubt probably felt this temptation to a love of money and a fear of what is going to happen when that money dries up. So that may have been how they experienced the love of money. But the love of money is a common, nearly universal temptation and experience for human beings. And probably for many, if not most of us in this room, we have a love of money that we feel rise up in our hearts. We don't have to conjure it up. It naturally arises within us. We, it, it crosses time, cultures, social classes. It's not just the rich who love money. It's not just the poor who love money. It is all people have this temptation. We long for more, right? We long for the security that we think money can give. We long for that day when someday we will finally have enough, whatever we deem as enough, and it's always elusive. And I don't think, I want us to remember that this falls under the banner of brotherly love. Because sometimes we think, just like we think of sexual sin as, as having nothing to do with our brothers and sisters, sometimes we think of our financial life as having nothing to do with our brothers and sisters, but it does. That the love of money can have a deep impact on how you relate to fellow Christians, right? We have seen this happen. I've seen this happen sometimes in my own heart and life. I've seen it happen in many people's lives and hearts where the discontent we feel with our financial situation starts to bleed out into how we live our life, right? Where in the pursuit of money, we just work and work and work and work and we neglect our families, right? because of a love of money and a fear of a lack of money. 
We sometimes, when we're chasing that elusive enough, we maybe unintentionally, we reduce our participation in Christian worship. Maybe I need to work that seventh day now. I, I can't fellowship with God's people anymore because I, I need to get more. We need more. I need more, right? When we have these, this love of money, we start to see almost everything and even everyone through the eye of money. And finally, it's like we have green-colored glasses on, right? Where we start to see people as a financial target or as an obstacle to me being able to make more money, right? When we're chasing money and we're loving money, we often withhold generosity from people who may need it, right? Because we need to keep it for ourselves, right? And plus, this was something I was thinking about yesterday, the more we love money, and that we live our life pursuing it, we are setting a model for everybody else to do the same, for our children to do the same, for our neighbors to do the same. We unintentionally put pressure on each other to keep up with each other, right? Like, as I chase more, you need to chase more, and they need to chase more. And we end up not just individually loving money, but collectively loving money. And he gives the antidote to this love of money and it's contentment, right? He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. So fellow Christians in the room, I want to lovingly remind you of what you have. Like what you have. He says to be content with what you have. And I don't think he's just saying be content with your income level. Be content with your house. Be content with whatever portfolios you have or don't have or whatever. Like, I think when he's saying to be content with what you have, what he has most deeply in mind is not just what you have, but who you have because of what he says next, right? He says, be content with what you have for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? Fellow Christians, you may find yourself today or someday you may find yourself jobless, moneyless, like prospectless, inheritanceless, homeless, maybe someday, but you are never, ever, ever godless. Like he, he wants them to know and remember when you have nothing monetarily, if you don't just stay at your same status but you lose everything, you do not lose God. You never can, you never will lose God as a fellow Christian. He quotes there from, I think, a similar text that sound like that where God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I think the closest one is back in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, where God had told the Israelites who were about to go into Canaan and fight their enemies, he had told them that I will be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you, right? I, I will be with you. And the force of this, I don't often talk about the Greek. Uh, I, I don't even know Greek incredibly, incredibly well. Uh, but I do know this in looking at it. This phrase that I will never leave you nor forsake you, the English just doesn't do justice to it. Like when you look it up, so in English it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's like two things, so it feels emphatic. You read this in Greek and there are five words. And that one sentence, I'll mean no or not. Like, I will not, no, never, not, leave you. Uh, it is like this emphatic, God not just saying it once, but saying it five times. Never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. I, I was thinking that the song we sing sometimes called How Firm a Foundation. I finally thought of that this week. The last chorus, I thought they were just trying to fill some syllables uh, where they say, I'm not going to try to sing it, but we sing He'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. I had never thought about that before. I think whoever wrote that is trying to essentially quote this from the Greek. God will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. Like he has sent Christ to die for you, right? Like he by his spirit has drawn you and united him with himself. He will not leave you. Money may dry up. God will not leave you. His spirit will not leave you. He is with you now and always. He will never, no, never, no, never forsake. God is with you even in your poverty. God is with you even when you have less than everyone else around you. 
when your prospects are diminishing, when you're hitting retirement and you don't have enough saved up, when you're, whatever the situation is financially, when you're wanting to do a vacation, you just can't afford it, when you, you feel like you need to downsize, all these things, God is with you just as much in those moments as he is when you've had prosperity. Right? So he says, so we can confidently say, the Lord my helper, I won't fear anything. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So be thankful for what you have in this life. Take inventory of that sometimes. We all have things we could be thankful for, should be thankful for, right? George Herbert said, He is not poor that hath little, but he who desireth much. That's a great line that even when you have little, that doesn't mean you are poor. It may mean you want more, but it doesn't mean you are poor. You have much, but beyond earthly possession, you have God himself thought a lot about the city of Philadelphia this week, uh, not because of July 4th and the Declaration of Independence uh, being signed there, but because Philadelphia, I think most of you know, means brotherly love, or love of brother. It's actually like the second word in today's text, Philadelphia. Uh, that city of Philadelphia uh, was founded by a man named William Penn back in the late 1600s. Uh, I don't want to speak ill of that city. I've barely visited it before, but I don't think it has lived up to its name, the city of brotherly love. Uh, but I, I don't just say that about Philadelphia, like it's uniquely bad. No human city could live up to that name, right? No earthly city could live up to that name, Philadelphia, city of, of brotherly love, not even Winona Lake, precious Winona Lake, uh, is a city of brotherly love. And I say that because expressions of brotherly love flow from a shared experience of fatherly love, right? Like, you can't love people as brothers just because you live under the same set of laws or you live in the same geographical region, right? That is not showing brotherly love. Brotherly love is shown by people who share the experience of fatherly love. And so no city, no matter how great its laws, no matter how good its leaders, will ever really become the city of brotherly love because, like the Apostle John said, we love because he first loved us. Right? That's the direction it goes. God has loved us, so we love each other. Brotherly love flows from fatherly love. But I would say there is one city where Philadelphia is truly lived out, right? And it's not on earth, right? It's the city of Zion, like that we learned about last week, the heavenly city of God, he called it. Um, we just sang about it. That is the city where God dwells and where every citizen of Zion is a child of God right? Not just good people, kind people. We are redeemed children of God, and we love each other well there. And where you see Zion here on earth is not in Winona Lake, and it's surely not in Philadelphia. Just watch some of their sports games and how they treat their athletes sometimes. Uh, It's nowhere in a city where you see Zion pop up and brotherly love expressed on this earth is in churches, Because that is where people are redeemed, where we are not just Hoosiers, right? We are not just Americans. Like, we are Christians. We're sons and daughters of God, and we love each other because of that, right? We are loved by God, and we love each other as brothers and sisters. So ordering our loves is hard, uh, but it's important, and by God's grace, we have help through His Holy Spirit to do so.